I'm gonna go with it. I was gonna win that last round, so it's like I won anyway. I'm gonna go with it. I would have won that last round anyway, so it's like I won. I get to finish it with that great finale for me. I'm not lost going out. You need to be back next year. It's not like the first week in the city. Okay, we are going to go and, and try to finish uh, the uh, end of Nehemiah here. Before we do that, Luke is going to lead us in prayer. else left over from the discussion of instrumental music that you're dying to say or ask about? Okay. In general, I'll move just a little bit more quickly off the comments tonight so that we can be sure and finish this. But we're looking at uh, really uh, not only the, the celebration, kind of the dedication of the walls, but some of the provisions that are made for worship and for the maintenance of the temple here at this appropriate moment. So we're in chapter 12. Would somebody read 44 to 47? And at the same time, some were appointed over the rooms of the storehouse for the offering, the first fruits, and the tithe, to gather into them from the fields of the cities the portions specified by the law for the priests and Levites, for you to rejoice over the priests and Levites who minister. Both the singers and the gatekeepers kept the charge of their God and the charge of the purification according to the command of David and Solomon his son. For in the days of David and Asaph before, there were chief, chiefs of the singers and songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. In the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah, all Israel gave the portions to the singers and the gatekeepers, a portion for each day. They also consecrated holy things for the Levites, and the Levites consecrated them to the children of Aaron. Okay. So it's necessary to provide for the uh, ongoing worship, the maintenance of the priests and the Levites. So Nehemiah appoints uh, people to be over the storehouses for the tithes and the first fruits and the offerings. And they worship God in the way that God has prescribed through David and through Solomon uh, with the songs of praise and so forth. And the Israelites are giving uh, the particular portions that are supposed to be given. It's easier sometimes to 
do a project like building the walls and to continue to provide for those who lead in the worship and continue to worship God the way that's, that he says. But Nehemiah's goal is to glorify God in all things. It's not just to get walls built. Certainly it's not a monument to Nehemiah. Nehemiah is concerned that the worship continue to honor the Lord in the way that he says. Comments or thoughts about that or things in chapter 12? Okay. It would be nice, really, I think, if uh, the book of Nehemiah just ended right here. It would be a more pleasant book. Uh, but that's not what happened. So, now uh, chapter 13, verses 1 to 3. <laughs> timing of some of these things, but they're reading in the book of the law, and what do they discover? Yeah, the Moabites and Ammonites should not enter the assembly of God. Moab, Moabites and Ammonites have one big thing in common. What's that? What? They're Gentiles, Lee. They were descendants of Lot, exactly. And so they are tied together. Now we remember particularly the Moabites because of the king that hired Balaam to try to get him to curse the Israelites. What was that king's name? Balak. And uh, as a result of that, it was uh, the Ammonites and Moabites should not enter the assembly of God, so they excluded the foreigners. Now again... This was not primarily racial. This was primarily religious. Back in Ezra 6, verse 21, those who separated themselves from the impurity of the nations of the land to join them were able to even eat the Passover with God's blessing. And so those who really converted to the Lord from other nations could do that. Uh, Ruth was a Moabitess who was a part of Israel because she left her gods and her religion and joined uh, with the God of, of Israel. Uh, but those who were foreigners, those who didn't repent, uh, were not to be a part of the temple. They were not to be allowed in, and they excluded them. That seems to be about the last good thing we see about the Israelites in this book. You remember how they made this commitment, made this covenant, that they are going to, to do what the Lord says, especially no intermarriage, keeping the Sabbath, and making the financial contributions, the sacrifices and offerings, the first fruits, uh, and all the other things that God had, uh, had, uh, had uh, uh, commanded for the provision of the priests and the Levites in the temple. So... Uh, with that in mind, with that backdrop of that commitment, they, they wrote their names on it, it was, it was specific and definite and public and all those sorts of things. Look at what happens. 4 to 14. Now prior to this, Eliashib the priest 
who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, being related to Tobiah, had prepared a large room for him, where formerly they put the grain offerings and frankincense, the utensils, and the tithes of grain, wine and oil prescribed for the Levites, the singers, and the gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. But during this time, I was not in Jerusalem. For the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, the king of Babylon, I had gone to the king. After some time, however, I asked to leave from the king, and I came to Jerusalem and learned about all the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah by preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. It was very displeasing to me, and so I threw out Tobiah, uh, threw out all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. Then I, order, took, then I gave an order, and they cleansed the rooms, and I returned there the utensils of the house of God with the grain offerings and the frankincense. I also discovered that the portions of the Levites had not been given them, so that the Levites and the singers who each uh, who performed the service had gone away each to his own field. So I reprimanded the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? Then I gathered them together and restored them to their posts. All Judah then brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. In charge of the storehouses, I appointed Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the priest, and Padiah the, of the Levites. And in addition to them was Hanan the son of Zachar, the son of Mataniah, for they were considerable, considered reliable, and it was their task to distribute their, to their kinsmen. Remember me, O oh my God, and do not blot out my loyal deeds, which I have performed for the house of my God and its services. Not every story ends and they lived happily ever after. And uh, this one is one of those. They'd won some battles, but they'd not won the war. And what we're going to see is they go back on every single provision in that agreement, that commitment they, that they, they made. You see right here, Eliashib the priest was related to Tobiah. Remember, they've been involved in these intermarriages with these people. And he prepared a large room. It's the room they used to use to store all the provisions for the Levites. And, he, and this is a room in the temple complex area. Nehemiah has been back in, in, uh, in Persia, back with Artaxerxes. So he wasn't there. He comes back to Jerusalem and he sees that Tobiah has managed to wangle himself a room about the size of a small warehouse in the temple of all things that the Jews had ceded that to them. Now part of it is they didn't have any supplies to store for the Levites because the people weren't bringing the tithes and offerings in. And, and so they just gave it over for Tobiah to use for his purposes in God's temple complex. It must have given him a lot of satisfaction to see the room that was supposed to be used for the provisions for the Levites that he just gets to take over. You know, sin creeps in. You tolerate it, and then you start, you know, liking it a little more, and then you, you pretty much just uh, invite it with open arms. It, it's just hard to believe that in a few years at most, They've just gone to this extreme. Well, how does Nehemiah feel when he gets back? 
not happy. He is not happy, is he? What does he do? Yeah, he goes in and he throws all of Tobiah's stuff out of that room. He gives an order for the room to be cleansed. He probably has them fumigated. You know, and he brings the utensils of the house of God and the offerings back into that room. Now, what do you think about Nehemiah's approach in this? Passionate. Passionate, yeah. That's a very nice way to say that. <laughs> I mean, he is very forceful. He is very upset. There's one thing you would probably, an adjective you probably wouldn't use to describe. Nehemiah right here. It's a four-letter adjective starting with N. Nice. Nice. He wasn't very nice. You know, niceness seems to be kind of the ultimate virtue in, in our culture. Uh, Nehemiah is not being overly nice. There's things more important than in this life than being nice. And uh, I just, it, it just, uh, you know, be interesting if we could have a video of Nehemiah doing this. You know, you imagine him you know, barging into this room. I just see Tobiah over here spluttering and stammering and stunned as, as Nehemiah's going in just throwing this stuff out. Did that remind you of anything else in the Bible? Jesus. Remember what he did in the temple? What do you think about Jesus doing something like that? Yes. Yes. Um, I'm going to tell this uh, without a lot of specifics, but uh, I knew a situation one time where um, there was a very, uh, very Christian, very respectable, uh, late middle-aged couple who went on a, a long vacation, like three or four week vacation. And they left the house in the care of one of their children. And that particular child saw fit one evening to invite all their uh, friends over for a big party with liquor and various forms of you know, immoral behavior, and so forth. Well, another sibling, an older sibling, happened to come by <coughs> the house that night. Saw all the cars and commotion, and went in and saw what was happening. In their father's, in their parents' house. Something their parents would absolutely never have tolerated. And this sibling just ordered them all out or she was going to call the police. And just very, just enraged because it was such a sacrilege. It was such a, it was such a disgrace to the parents. Something the parents would never have allowed. And uh, that, that's what I see Jesus doing. That's what I see Nehemiah doing. Nehemiah is passionate for God. And, and this is just wrong. We, we are in this culture where nothing's wrong. Well, it, you know, it wouldn't be for me, but, you know, I can't really say it's, it's wrong. It's probably not the best idea. I mean, we do that with everything. 
Is there anything that's really wrong anymore? You know, there is from a biblical standpoint, but there's hardly from a cultural standpoint about the only thing that's wrong anymore is, is being narrow-minded enough to think there's something that's wrong. Now, people get up in arms about that. But about anything else, it's tolerated. It's not with Nehemiah. This is a great example for, for just the kind of attitude we ought to have when you see things like that happening. It makes me wonder. If there doesn't need to be some temple house cleaning today. After all, what's God's temple today? Us. What needs to be thrown out of your life? Are there some things, some, some clutter, some sins, some misbehavior and wickedness and bad attitudes and all that that just need to be kicked out? And never let back in. You know, you think about the fact that God is trying to live in your body, in your heart. You think about some of the garbage that sometimes gets in there. We ought to be just as passionate as Nehemiah was. And, and, and just as enraged that Satan is trying to get that stuff in there and, and throw it out and never let it come back. Think about some of the things that may be in your life that that needs to be done with. And then, Nehemiah sees that the Levites, well, they're not being provided for. What are they doing now? Where have they gone? To their own fields. Why? They have to survive. Make a living. (laughs) They're not getting provided for. They're not getting supported. And Nehemiah reprimands, reprimands them and says... You've abandoned the house of God. Get back here. And all Judah started bringing the tithes back in. I don't know whether which came first. I don't know if the people were not bringing the tithes and therefore the priests abandoned their post or if the priests abandoned their post and the Levites and the people quit bringing the tithes. But either way, the priests and the Levites need to be working and the people need to be paying the tithes. Now, it makes you wonder at the fact that the Levites haven't been on, on duty as part of the reason the people don't haven't even thought about what the law says and are violating it so much. Maybe, maybe that's why they weren't paying the, the tithe. Maybe they didn't want to hear from the Levites as to what was right and wrong. In any case, they need to get back on their, their duty and the people had signed a document that they were never going to let it happen, that they were going to provide. And so they're ordered to do that He appoints some reliable people in verse 13 to be in charge of the storehouses and to distribute the the gifts and the offerings and so forth to the Levites. And he says in verse 14, Remember me for this, O my God, and do not blot out my loyal deeds which I perform for the house of my God and its services. You know, Nehemiah has this moment-by-moment awareness of God. It's almost like he wants to tell his father, what he's done for him. You know, like a child who's eager to share with his, his dad. You know, here's what I did. And if we had that attitude, if we were more just constantly thinking about the Lord and eager for the Lord to see what we're doing, we're eager for other people to see what we're doing. That's not the point. Forget about what anybody else sees. Think about the Lord and trying to honor and glorify Him. You see how much that Nehemiah's service to God is not some mask he puts on. It's his life. 
It's in his every fiber of his body. You know, he, he loves God. He, he honors and respects and fears the great God and his holiness. And he stands up for him and he does what's right. So Nehemiah comes back and that's what he does when he gets back. That's quite a, that's quite a uh, section. Comments and questions on all of that. It's so amazing that like he comes back and he's like, why is the house of God forsaken? And that was like all the way back to the time of like Haggai, when they first were coming back from captivity and they had forsaken the house of the Lord. It's like they've just it's like hit the reset button and they're they've gone just retrogressed so quickly. Now they've got walls protected, but now they're not protecting what's what's in. It's disappointing. When you see them just backslide so quickly. You know, I mean, think about you yourself. Right now, at the end of this camp, how many of you, you don't need to raise your hand, but how many of you are really determined you are going to serve the Lord for the rest of your life? No matter what it takes, no matter how hard it is, no matter what you have to change, that you are going to do that. I understand that that's probably not every single person in here. I think it's a lot of you right now that I'm looking at. You are determined. You are committed. They were too. The unsettling thing is that even among you guys that are very determined, and you are absolutely committed. You will serve God for the rest of your life. Come what may. There will be some of you. That won't. Stick it out. Some of you that will slip back. Make sure that's not you. When we make these commitments. And when we decide. I am going to serve God. We have to stick with it. That. It is a lot easier to sign the paper, so to speak, than it is to stick with it because that takes day after day after day. You cannot live tomorrow. Each single day, you have to serve God. And you let Satan get a toehold. It's kind of like letting, you know, you open that door a little bit and the elephant gets his trunk in. Before you know it, you got the whole elephant in there. Keep the door where it needs to be. Keep serving God every single day where we need to be. So that's, that's a, a lesson. Look, look at what else has happened. Ah, this is not the end of the story. Would somebody read 15 to 22? In those days, I saw in Judah some who were treading wine presses on the Sabbath. And bringing in sacks of grain and loading them on donkeys, as well as wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads. And they brought them into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So I admonished them on the day they sold food. Also men of Tyre were living there, who imported fish and all kinds of merchandise, and sold them to the sons of Judah on the Sabbath, even in Jerusalem. Then I reprimanded the nobles of Judah, and said to them, What is this evil thing you are doing, by profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do the same, so that our God brought on us and on this city all this trouble? Yet you were adding to the wrath on Israel, 
by profaning the Sabbath. It came about that just as it grew dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and that they should not open them until after the Sabbath. Then I stationed some some of my servants at the gates so that no load would enter on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the traders and merchants of every kind of, of merchandise spent the night outside Jerusalem. Then I warned them and said to them, Why do you spend the night in front of the wall? If you do so again, I will f- use force against you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. And I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come as gatekeepers to sanctify the Sabbath day. For this also remember me, O my God, and have compassion on me according to the greatness of your loving kindness. So what else was happening? They were trading on the Sabbath. Yeah, they were violating the Sabbath day, treading the wine presses, buying and selling. They were letting people bring all kinds of stuff to be bought in Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. Men of Tyre were importing fish. and it It was just a regular merchant day. And that's something they had committed themselves not to let happen. Think about what they were doing. There was a book they were disobeying. There was a place they were dishonoring. There was a a ministry they weren't supporting. And now there's a day they're disregarding. They have pretty much not done much of anything the Lord wanted them to do. And when when they engage in business on the Sabbath day, they're just infringing on the time God specifically asked for them to devote to Him. That, that's a real serious matter. And so what does Nehemiah do? First of all, in 17, what does he do? He reprimands the nobles. Yeah, he tells them. He reprimands them. They need to be reprimanded. They were wrong. He, he, Nehemiah, this is nothing about Nehemiah's ego or Nehemiah getting his way. This is all about the will of God and they were violating. And, and he, he shut the gates of Jerusalem and commanded that they stay shut through the Sabbath day. And that nothing comes into the city on the Sabbath day. <laughs> well, what did those traders and merchants from other places do? Hey, camped out right outside the city walls, wanting to get in on the Sabbath day. They did that a couple of times, and what does Nehemiah do? Yeah, he says, you either get out of here, or next time I'm coming at you with force. He's, you're not staying. Remember, Nehemiah's a governor. He's got the force. And so he's, he shoes them off, and he tells the Levites, you know, to... to uh, be gatekeepers to sanctify the Sabbath. Do not let anybody in on the Sabbath. And again, he, he asked God to remember him. What Nehemiah did wasn't for, the, for himself. It wasn't for the nation as much as it was for the Lord. He was thinking about the Lord the whole time he was doing this. He was passionate for God. Comments and questions on this? Sean. So that... Verse 22, when he says, remember me and have compassion on me, um, is he talking about like including himself in their sin like he did earlier, or is this a different type of compassion he's asking for? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe just to be merciful to him because of his loyalty and zeal and standing up for what's right. That's more the way I tend to see his statements right now. 
is that he's doing this for God. And so he wants God to be merciful to him because he's shown his loyalty to him. But at the same time, he says, have compassion on me according to the greatness, and I would have said, of my loyalty to you. Or to the greatness of my dedication. But again, like he still knows that the only way I can have compassion is because of the Lord's loving kindness. Certainly, yeah. I don't think he's trying to uh, exempt himself from the need of God's grace. Good point. Other thoughts? John? I, one of the things here bringing this to us as men, uh, when we become fathers, or especially with you know, leaders in the congregation, discipline isn't just teaching, it's not just punishment. Um, and I think you see Nehemiah doing both of those. Verses uh, 17 and 18 sound a lot like what Eli said to his sons. You know, he was like, I hear that you're doing bad things, that's not good, God doesn't like it. But he didn't restrain them. Nehemiah does what a strong leader has to do sometimes, not being nice, uh, saying, this is wrong and I'm going to do something about it. And uh, you know, we need to be prepared as men to, to take those kind of measures. That's exactly right. Yeah, doing the right thing is more than just saying naughty, naughty shouldn't do that. And sometimes we have to take actions that are unpopular. Jared? Sometimes uh, I think we get, get caught up in the whole be nice to me um, when really we need people in our lives like Nehemiah that are willing to be rough with us and are willing to do the hard thing for us. That's a good point also. Think of it on the receiving end. Sometimes we need somebody who loves us enough to tell us exactly what we need to hear, and how will we take that? Jeff? That phrase, well, this also remembers me, oh my God, have compassion on me. I wonder if it's not just the idea. After the actions that I've taken and what I'm doing and saying to these people here, you, God, you may be the only friend I have left. Please, <laughs> you be compassionate on me. Yes. Yeah, I, wow. You would think that you would surely know you'd run the risk of having few friends left after you do things like this. I'm not sure that was the case, but it sure could be. And we need to be willing to stand alone with the Lord if necessary. Stephen. I think it's notable that it's like the, the sinful opportunity doesn't just completely go away. They don't see the gate shut and leave. They, they camp out. They're, they're ready for another opportunity. But when Nehemiah goes out and it's like, you don't come back here, next time I'm using force, it says that they, uh, from that time on, they did not come on the side. And it's like, we need that kind of firmness to send in our life. Like, you cannot come back here. You will not come back here. And resist the devil and he will flee from you. Um, you know, that's the kind of firmness we need. Yeah, that's exactly right. Sometimes we uh, we semi-expel sin from our life, but we leave it just as close to us as, as possible so we can go back to it anytime we want to. Instead of removing ourselves from it and really uh, really expelling it from, from our presence. Noah. That's right. Okay, how about 23 to 29? In those days I saw Jews that married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and 
could not speak the language of Judah, but spoke according to the language of one or the other people. So I contended with them and cursed them, and struck some of them and pulled out their hair, and made them swear for God, saying, You shall not give your daughters or, as wives to your sons, nor take your daughters for your sons or yourselves. Do not, did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations there was no king like him who was beloved of his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, taking women caused him, even him, to sin. Should we then hear of your doing all this great evil and guessing against our God by marrying taking women? And one of the sons of Joed, Joed, uh, the son of Elish, Elish, the high priest, was a son-in-law of St. Balas, the Horonite. Therefore I drove him from me. Remember them, O oh my God, for they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood of the Levites. Thus I punished them of everything taken. I also assigned duties to the priests and the Levites, each to his service, and to bring the woods of offering in the first form, first flute at a point in time. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. So they had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Remember how Ammon and Ashdod in chapter 4 had plotted to fight against Jerusalem. There's more than one way to destroy a city though and they decide to uh, intermarry with them and kind of destroy it from the inside. You know, so much for walls if they're going to just bring those people from other nations who are their, the enemies of God into the city as their marriage partners and as a result of that What's happening with the children? They can't even speak the language of their people anymore. Well, so? What's the big deal with that? God's words in that language. That's exactly right. I think it, it cuts them off from their access to the word of God because God's word was written in their language. It almost paganizes them by language when they can't even speak the language uh, that the Jews are speaking. This is just a serious matter. You're almost in erosion of the identity of the Israelites. As a result of that, what did Nehemiah do here? What do you think about that? That's a rather um, forceful response to this, don't you think? Uh, it really reminds me a lot of Ezra, except whose hair did Ezra pull out when they were intermarried? His own. Ezra and Nehemiah are quite a study in compliments, uh, particularly in this point. You know, you can see Ezra pulling out his hair because of what the people have done. Nehemiah challenges them strikes them, pulls out their hair, and makes them swear by God, you shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take of their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. And it's just very forceful in dealing with them. You know, one of the things that you see in Nehemiah is that he is outraged by sinful behavior. Complacency almost leaves us numb to sin. You know, you just get used to it. You just tolerate it. It becomes normal, natural. It's okay. And, and we just sort of go along with it. And Nehemiah comes in 
And they're like a raging bull almost, just, just horrified by what they are doing. And he's not going to put up with it. Now again, he's got the force. He's the governor. He's got the right to do uh, what he wants to do with that. And so he's just very forceful in confronting this. And even one of the sons of Joiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was a son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. You know, so he's got a grandson that married a daughter of Sanballat. It's just ridiculous. The high priest's grandson married a daughter of Sanballat, of all things. And you see how the, the, the leadership of Israel is intermarrying with the leadership of the enemies. What were they thinking? Two of the people who'd most vigorously opposed the rebuilding of the walls now had influential positions in, in uh, the higher religious echelon of the Israelites. So this is just really a, a terrible thing. And uh, Nehemiah drove him away in verse 28. And again, says, remember them, O oh my God, because they defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. They needed to be remembered and punished. And he purifies them in verse 30 and, uh, and, and kind of summarizes what he did in verses 30 and 31. And then again says, remember me, O oh my God, for good. You know, he, he starts this book and he ends this book praying to God, conscious of God, always aware of God, asking for God to remember him for good. And, uh, you know, always, uh, always focused on what the Lord thinks about him and wanting to honor God in the things that he does. Comments and thoughts on this story, Josh? Is there a single rule in their covenant that they made earlier that they didn't break? I don't think there was. No, I think they pretty much systematically destroyed every, everything they committed themselves to. Kind of sad. John. Uh, did Nehemiah ever respond wrongly? I don't think that the responses we see here are wrong. I think they are appropriate responses given his position and given what has happened. Um, I think they seem wrong to us because we've we just think any strong response against sin is, is not right. But I, I would take these as being a model for us. If we're in a similar situation, similar opportunity. That part confuses me a little bit. I wasn't going to say anything, but he like struck them and pulled out their hair. Yeah, we might do that in a figurative way. Okay. But you think about what you see in the New Testament. You know, what did Jesus do? Well, he drove out the money changers, overturned the tables, and he spoke strong. What did Paul do? You know, he had the power, but he blinded Elamus. You know, and he spoke out strongly and opposed strongly. He delivered men to Satan. You know, we're, we may not going to be physically going to strike people. We may ask God to do that. Paul, that's what Paul said to Ananias, the uh, high priest, God strike you, you whitewashed wall. But he's still very firm in his opposition to the sin. We have to be sure that 
that what we're doing is non-self-focused and that we're just standing up for what's right. We have to have the balance you have in the Bible. You know what we tend to do? We tend to fight for our own rights and be complacent about God's will. So you think about Jesus. When Jesus was mistreated, how did he handle it? Didn't even open his mouth. Didn't try to defend himself. Didn't do anything. When God's house was being violated, that's when he really was outraged and acted firmly. So, you know, if, if, if we get in this thing where, man, they treated me badly, they didn't respect me, you know, I'm not going to let anybody act like that toward me, don't use Nehemiah as a basis for that. Don't use Nehemiah as a basis for being just contentious and difficult and wanting to fight about every opinion we have. But when there are things that are clearly wrong, you think about what Paul said to Corinth when they had this man living with his stepmother. You know, deliver him to Satan. And uh, very forceful about that. Um, You know, if you want a balancing passage in the New Testament... I like 2 Timothy chapter 2. I think it's a good passage to help us not go to one extreme or the other, to realize there are different kinds of situations. 2 Timothy 2.24, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. We need to gently rescue some people from Satan's trap. But there are other times we need to forcefully stand up for what's right. Discipline in the way God's word says to unfaithful members of a church, people who are immoral and refuse to change and things like that. So I think Nehemiah is a really good example. Not necessarily we'd apply exactly like he did every statement, but that that commitment and uh, passion for God. Jeff? Well, I was less in Nehemiah about the strength with which we should both sin. The difference is that Nehemiah is not only a spiritual leader, but he's a political leader with a authority And so while the preacher of God's word, I need to be strong in opposition. Right, right, yes. I would agree with that. He's in a position as the governor to execute corporal punishment. We're not normally in that kind of position. If we were a governmental official, there might be a time that we would authorize the corporal punishment, but not spiritually. Good point. Joe? Would the greater lesson be to recognize our Lord is the one who's in that position well, that's for sure. I mean, the first job we've got is to clean up our temple. And that's me. And so, that, that's certainly the first thing we need to do. I do think God gives us some responsibilities in terms of discipline in the congregation, even rebuking and reproving those who are in sin. But that's after we've really dealt with it in our own life.
Yeah, good point. You know, and often our children go farther in the sin than what we've gone. You know, they follow farther down that road. Yeah, that's a good point. Other thoughts? Simon? The, the thought occurs to me that Nehemiah initially left the comforts of captivity to go clean up this city. And he had a big job to do, which was to build the walls. But after that, he found out there was an equally big job to do, and that was to restore the worship. After that, he found out there was an equally big job to do, and that's restore the Sabbath. After that, he found out there was an equally big job to do, and that was restore the people. So it makes me just think about our own spiritual journey, if you will. We have to make the decision to leave the comforts of captivity. And then there's almost like spiritual projects along the way. And every time you get, you think you've got one done, you see another one that's just as much a big deal that you need to take care of. And he does. Great point. Other thoughts? Comments? Good, good thoughts. All right. Well, uh, no. Josh, Josh, um, while while the priest was there, um, Josh was doing what was right and restoring the temple and helping the people do what was right. Um, but after the priest died, Josh then went in a down direction, and that caused him to Great point. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes when a certain person we respect is around, we'll do well. When they're not, we don't. And it shows that we're not really focused on the Lord like we ought to be. All right. Well, I've really enjoyed uh, doing Nehemiah, and I appreciate your listening to that. If you have time, I would certainly encourage you to go back and reread Nehemiah a few times in the next few weeks. You get so much more out of a study if you reread a few times after the study. Just keep meditating on this and learning from it. Thanks.
Yeah, there's definitely direct communication right there, you know. Alright, dude, go
elsewhere on your own. Um, this is what it's about. This is what this camp is about. We have a responsibility. And a lot of people, a lot of younger people in the world, they don't care. You've come to a camp like this, you've probably noticed a lot of the focus of what this camp's about. I mean, you've got Bible studies all day, we've got singing. Look at that focus. Are you invested in the things you've been singing about tonight, throughout this week? Are you invested in the Bible classes, in the study, in growing deeper in God's Word? If you're not, I'd ask, why not? And if you are, keep going. You've got, look, look around, you've got all these people, these are your brothers. This is the last night of camp. Next week, you may not see these people for another year. You may not see these people ever again. But the context you've made here, the friendships you've made here, this is what carries you forward. We've got teachers, we've got the staff here, the counselors. Anyone here is there for you, is willing to help if you ever need anything. Uh, the first song that we had sung, uh, The Army of Our Lord. That's us. That's, that's all of us. Tonight, when I... Uh, when I asked Joe if I could, you know, see the people who haven't had a chance to leave, uh, after I'd announced that for them, you know, come to me talking so we can work something out, you know, you got some of the younger kids, you got some of the older kids, you had them coming straight to me, especially younger kids, they came straight to me, they're like, hey, you know, I want this opportunity. And that should be your attitude. You want that opportunity. You want to fill in where you can. You want to make those opportunities that you can have that chance. You can have that chance to serve. Not just the people here, not just leading us alone, but countless people I've seen here making comments in Bible classes, good points, got me thinking, got some of the teachers thinking. It's amazing what we can do from this camp. If you haven't taken it seriously, you really need to reevaluate the reasons you came to a camp like this. You need to take those opportunities. This is a great camp. And we just need to understand it's not an easy world out there. When we go home, it's going to be different. If you need to decide if you're going to make it different. If you came here from situations that aren't great, do what you can to make them better. May not mean that they're going to then turn into great situations. But you can make it better. You have something to live for. You have someone to live for. Sure. I'm plugging this up. I want to say.
something about people who do too much for you. I mentioned uh, the sacrifice and all the time and stuff they do, as opposed to if it was just paid. Another thing is, do you guys eat this good every week? <laughs> that's three. It would it would be a lot easier. Well, there you go. It would be a lot easier, and we wouldn't have a right to complain. If it was just some Wonder Bread and some lunch meat at lunchtime and just a bowl of cereal at supper time and occasionally some hot dogs or, you know, or something, that's, it's pretty impressive. And why do, you, why do you think they do this? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and, and all the work that Joe and, and, and John and helping do, why do you think they do that? They care about them. Why, some of these teachers drove a long, long way to get here. Why do you, why do you think they did that? I, it's one thing, we enjoy camp, too. We benefit from camp, too. But also, the people that make the camp possible, they care about you and they appreciate there's, that there's this number of young men who want to spend the week of their summer focusing on God. And we care about who you're going to be when you grow up. And we're going to be gone after a while, but you guys are going to be here and, and, and we care about you. Alright, now, um, we're almost set to go here. You want that plugged in? Yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, while this is pulling up, why are questions an effective way to get someone's Attention. They have to start thinking. Because they're included. They need to respond. Because they need to respond to people. Because they need to respond. Why do you suppose I began this with a question? <laughs> I wanted an answer. 